know this may be hard for some of you to believe, but tonight is our last sermon, our last part of going through the book of James. And so fall break is next week, if you did not know that. So we will not have service next week. Y'all will be out and about probably somewhere in Texas having fun. And so we won't be here next week. When we get back from fall break, we'll be taking a five-week study through one chapter of the Bible. I know, you're not, I know you're not allowed to say this, but I think it's the greatest chapter in the Bible, and it's Romans 8. This last summer, we went through the book of Romans in 412, and the feedback we got over and over and over again was, I wish we could have gone slower. I wish we could have gone slower. I wish we could have really diving deeper into some of these verses, some of these passages, and so that's exactly what we're gonna do. We're gonna take five weeks just to go through one chapter of the Bible, and I think it's gonna be great. Before tonight, as we wrap up, James, if you've been kind of following along with us, the book of James is very, very practical. Some people call it the Sermon on the Mount 2.0. Some people call it the book of Proverbs of the New Testament. Whatever you wanna call it, it's very practical. Hey, if you want to be a follower of Jesus, here's what you should do. Here's what you shouldn't do. Here's what your life should look like. Here's what the fruit should look like. And so James finishes up this letter, kind of giving a couple quick practical applications for what to do in different seasons of your life. And so as Jacob said earlier, it's going to look a little different. We're going to break tonight up into a couple different sections and give you a chance to actually participate. And I'm asking you, even if it feels weird, even if it feels uncomfortable, even if it's something that you don't really want to do or you've never done before, I'm, I'm asking you, even just for my sake, to try it out, to really participate, to communicate and talk with the people around you, whether you know them really well or you don't know them at all. And we also have people in the back. We'll all have some staff back there as well that we'd love for you to talk to you as well. So here's what James walks us through. If you got your Bibles, we'll be in the last chapter, verses 13 to 20. He wants us as followers to know, what do I do when things are good? What do I do when things are bad? And what do, what do I do when things are just ugly or messy? And so the first question he tries to address is, what should I do when things are good? Like when I'm out there, that mountaintop experience, and, and some of you in the room might be there tonight. I hope there are some of you here that are just like, man, things are just going so well this semester. I'm getting the grades I want. I have this relationship that I want. Like I got into the fraternity or the sorority, or I have a group of friends that I want, or my roommates are great. Like I really hope that's, that's the experience for some of you. And so James is, is asking the question, what do we do when we feel like we're on that mountaintop experience? Everything is going well. We have that kind of like, man, God is so good. And, and that's exactly his response. He says in verse 14, he says this, if anybody, if anybody in here is happy, if anyone here is joyful, let them sing songs of praise. If you're happy, if you're joyful, if things are going well, you're like, man, life is good. He says the response should be in those times, praise. 
thanksgiving. Be thankful. Praise God for the good things that he's given you. And now my question reading that, knowing myself, knowing the people in this room, why is it so hard for us to acknowledge God when things are going well? Like when everything in our life is going kind of the way we want it to, why are those the seasons where it's hardest to pray? Why is it those are the hardest seasons to give thanks to God? Why is it those the hardest seasons to acknowledge that God is the one at the center of it all? And there's probably a lot of reasons, but I'm gonna give you two, at least the two most prevalent that I've seen. Number one is this idea of self-reliance. It's, it's, it's pride. When things are going well, there's this thing inside of us that says, look what I did. Man, I worked hard for this. Look at all the things I did to accomplish this. I deserve this. This is on me. Like, I did this. And looking at my own life, this has been a part of my life since I was little. The first, my first two words, I kid you not, were me do. Me do. That's why I used to say, anytime my parents tried to help me with anything, anytime I made a mess, anytime I like broke something, they'd come in to help and no, me do, me do. I'd want to do everything on my own. I'd want, I was this self-reliance, this pride that was, that was deeply ingrained in me, even as a little kid. And decades later, I still feel that same thing inside of me, that same thing in my flesh. Like, me do, me do. When things are going well, I forget God because I've deceived myself in thinking, this is all on me. I, I, I earn these things. I, I, I have this relationship because I'm such a good guy. Like, I've got these grades because I work so hard. Like, I have these possessions or, or these things because I earned it. And we forget God. And the second thing I see, which is different, it's not self-reliance, but discontentment. If you're anything like me, the second you get the very thing that you've been praying for, it doesn't take very long for you to look to the next thing. And in fact, in the greatest poem that's ever been written, at least the most famous poem that's ever been written, King David touches on this. In Psalm 23, this is how he starts, the first three lines. Y'all know it. The Lord is my shepherd. There's nothing I lack. He makes me lie down in green pastures. And the crazy thing is it took me years, years of reading that, skipping over that third line until someone finally showed me what that line actually means. I read this book called A Shepherd's Guide to Psalm 23. Y'all should all read it. It's like this small. You could read it in a couple days. And it's an actual modern-day shepherd. Like, he takes care of sheep. He has a whole flock. But he's also a pastor. And he's shedding light on how a shepherd would actually view Psalm 23. And when he gets to the line, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He says that sheep are so dumb that when a shepherd leads them into these pastures for them to eat, 
they won't look down, but they'll look ahead. And they won't look at the green pastures that they're standing in, but they'll look at that one over there. And so then they'll keep walking that way. They'll keep walking that way. And then they'll get to where they were walking to, and they don't look at the green pastures that they're stepping in right now, but they'll see that one over there, and they'll keep walking to that one, walking to that one. And when they get there, they'll keep doing the same thing until some of them actually will die of starvation, unless a good shepherd makes them lie down in green pastures. A good shepherd will force his sheep to recognize that the place that they're in right now is good. The place that they're in right now is exactly where they need to be. And God, as our good shepherd, does that for me and for you. When we're on this endless treadmill, this endless hamster wheel trying to think about the next thing, the next thing, man, I'll finally be happy when I have this relationship. I'll finally be happy when I get this job. I'll finally be happy when I graduate. I'll finally be happy when I make this much money or have this type of car or this type of house or get married or when I retire and just get to play golf all day, every day. Man, that's when I'll finally be happy. We're just dumb sheep going from the next thing to the next thing to the next thing. And God has to force us to recognize that where you are right now may not feel perfect. It may be messy, but there's good where you are right now today. And so for the next few minutes, again, this is what I'm saying. This is gonna be a little uncomfortable for some of you guys. I want you to turn to the person next to you or if you're sitting by yourself, we got people back there or, or just scoot over or go in groups of three. I don't care how you do it. And actually talk about, here's one thing in my life that's good. Here's one thing in my life that God has given me that's a gift. Here's one thing in my life that I'm thankful for. And then as we sing this next song, actually praise God. Let, let this next song just be a response to what God is doing in your life. And so we got to see and experience what, what our, our response should be when, when things are good on the mountaintop experience, what it, what it feels like and looks like to thank God and to praise him. But as most of you in this room probably know, that's not how life always is. It isn't always the mountaintop experience. And so what do we do when life is hard? What do we do when we're not on the mountain, but we're, but we're in the valley, when things are, are not good, when things are bad? And so some of you know this, but this is my, my daughter, Blair. I basically just want an excuse to put a picture of her up on the screen. This was taken this weekend at Silver Dollar City, the greatest place on earth, I'm convinced. Thank you. And so she right now, she's 11 months old, and all she wants to do, like her mountaintop, is to try to walk. That's, like that's all she wants to do. She can't do it. She doesn't know how to do it. But if you're holding her hand, like she can start taking steps and she just, she just goes. She can spend the whole day just like taking these little steps, walking around. That's all she wanted to do around Branson this weekend was just take these little steps all around. But what this picture doesn't show, right? That's me holding her hand, trying to help her walk. What this picture doesn't show is what happens 
when I let go of her hand. Because to teach her how to walk, sometimes you have to, to let go and, and, and try and teach her how to do it by herself. And so without fail, when you let go of her hand, sometimes she'll just like sit down and she's afraid, but other times she gets this confidence of like, I got this, me do, just like her dad. She's like, I can do this. And she'll start taking these steps and she's gotten a couple, a couple unassisted steps on her own, but usually she trips, she falls, maybe she falls backwards. Often she'll even hit her head. Don't, I'm a good dad, please don't, don't call anybody. Like This is part of the parenting process. She falls on the ground and immediately, every time, tears start welling up in her eyes. She's on the ground, she looks up, and she'll look for me or my wife, Lauren, and the second she makes eye contact, she just goes like this. And all she wants in that moment of pain, of sadness, is she just wants somebody, specifically her parents, she wants them to just pick her up, grab her. That's what's gonna make things right again. She knows that, that we're ultimately the ones that can provide comfort. We're ultimately the ones that can, can maybe make things better. She recognizes that, that she needs help. And so she just puts her arms, she asks for help the only way that she knows how. So you pick her up and try and make her feel better. And what's crazy about that is that an 11-month-old has learned a life lesson better than any of us in this room. An 11-month-old knows what to do when life is hard, when things get painful, when sickness or suffering comes onto the scene better than we do. She looks to the one that can, that can help her, looks to the one that can pick her up, looks to the one that cares for her. So that's what James says. When life is hard, here's what you do. He says, is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. James says, when you are sick or suffering or in trouble, in need of help, he says, pray. All he's saying is, go to the one that can help you. Ask for help. And before you get tripped up by this anointing with oil, this was used as a symbol of faith that God could heal. They knew that the oil in, the, in itself didn't do anything, but it was a symbol. Oil was costly. It was a sacrifice. That They were putting their faith that, that God could heal, that God would be the one that would meet them in their time of need. And believe it or not, our church fellowship still practices this today. If there's people or family that are, that are sick or in trouble or hurting or just in the, in the pit, at the valley, the bottom of the valley. They can call the elders, and the elders will come, anoint them with oil as a sign of their faith that God would be the one that could answer this prayer, that God could be the one that could heal. And so James' response for, for those when, when life is hard, when things are bad, is to pray, to go to God. And he says to pray in faith to trust that God will do something. 
And as an example, he talks about Elijah. And I wish we had 30 extra minutes just to do like a sermon on Elijah because this story is crazy. Please, please, please go home and read it. Second Kings, it's crazy. If you wanna talk about somebody whose faith amidst their prayer, amidst crazy suffering, trials, persecution, Elijah. And so, he, so James notes that he says, Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. He's saying, if you want to see God show up, pray with faith earnestly. Continue to pray again and again and again and again and pray until God shows up. Even if it takes you three and a half years, keep praying fervently. So when things are bad, turn to God in prayer. So I don't know what, what some of y'all are going through in this room, but, but I know some of you in that last section were like, man, the mountains, that mountaintop experience, life going well, that seems like such a distant memory. Things are hard. Relationships are broken. People are sick in my life. Family is hurting, going through divorce, going through just depression, anxiety. I know there's a lot of you in this room right now who feel like God is so, so far away. That life is not going the way that you planned. Can I be honest with you for a sec? That's where I'm at. This week has been one of the hardest weeks of my life. A couple weeks ago, my wife and I found out that we were pregnant with our second, second child. This was a prayer that we've been praying for a little while. We were so excited about this. And we go, we go to the doctor, they do the ultrasound, and immediately they're like, hey, these numbers aren't kind of where they want, we want them to be. The blood work that we did isn't in the spot that we would want it to be. Come back in a week, and hopefully the numbers will be in a better place, and hopefully in a week we'll be able to see a heartbeat. So my wife and I, like Elijah, just praying, Lord, heal this baby. Lord, give us a heartbeat. Lord, when we walk into that room next week, let there be a heartbeat. Please, God, let there be a heartbeat. So we walk into the room, Pretty pessimistic, if I'm being honest. I wish I could say I had the faith of Elijah, but, but, but expecting the worst. They do the ultrasound, and we hear this. We hear this, this heartbeat, and tears, tears of joy streaming down our face, giving God thanks. Thank you so much. Wow, like you answered this prayer, God. We, 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 this baby was not doing well. We prayed, you answered it, you are so good. That mountaintop, like, thank you, God, you are so good, you're in control of everything. Then they're like, okay, come back in two weeks and we'll just do your normal eight-week checkup and we'll, we'll kind of just go from there. And so we go in this Tuesday morning. Honestly, pretty optimistic, not thinking anything would be wrong. 
And the doctor says, guys, I'm so sorry. There's no heartbeat. And there hasn't been a heartbeat for a week. And in an instant, went from this mountaintop, God, you're so good. Thank you so much. Thank you for answering my prayers too. What are you doing? Why would you answer that prayer but not this one? Those tears of, of joy turned into tears of pain. Tears of confusion. Tears of suffering. And it felt like God was bullying me. And I wanted to run. But all I could do was look to him and just in tears, please, please help me. Please help me understand why you're doing this. Please help me to understand what your purpose is in this. Please help me to understand. Help heal my heart. Help me to trust you. The valley is not fun. Pain, suffering, when God doesn't answer the prayers like you want him to, it's, it's not fun. But I stand here tonight saying that God is still good. I wish I had an answer like, here's exactly what God's doing in this season. It's, it's honestly still so fresh for me right now. I hope to be up here in a year or two years or five years and say, wow, look at how God answered this prayer in a way that I would have never expected. But for now, all I can do is kind of put my hands up and ask God to help. Ask God to comfort me. Ask God to draw close. And so I know this is a little more vulnerable, but I want to do this same thing like we did before. And maybe you're not in that season. Maybe things are really good, going good for you. But I want you to think of something in your life or your family's life or someone around you, someone that needs prayer. If you can't think of anybody else, please just pray for me tonight. Go to God, ask him for help, ask him for healing. Trust that he is good and faithful and sovereign over it all. And as we continue to sing, praise him knowing that he's still good. And so James concludes this letter walking, walking us through what do we do when things are, are ugly? Like what do we do when our life just feels so messy? What do we do when there, there's sin in our life? We continue to do the things that we know we shouldn't do, and we don't do the things that we know we should do. What do we do when we're caught in that place? What's, what's our next step? And here's what he says. He says, if they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. He also says, my brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. He's saying when, when things in your life or things in the lives of the people around you even are just 
messy. They're, they're ugly. They're not the ways that you want them to be. You continue to walk in these habits and patterns and addictions that you swore that you would give up thousands and thousands of times. You continue to pursue the things that the world has esteemed instead of the things that God himself esteems and the things that God has said, these are what you should pursue. He says, if you are in that spot, which, spoiler, every single person in this room, Christian and non-Christian, is there in that spot tonight. He says, if you're there, if life is just a little ugly, if life is a little messy, he says, confess. Confess your sins to God. Acknowledge that what you, done, that what you did is against his design, against his will, but also confess your sins to one another and pray for each other. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other. And so my question, my last question, is why is it so hard for us to confess to one another and to God? And as I was thinking about this, it reminded me of a story when I was in high school. I had just learned how to drive. My dad gave me his dad's old car, which was like 30 years old at that point, 300,000 miles. And he had just bought, my dad had just bought this new top of the line 2008 Ford Edge. Like that was like the premier, the Ford Edge. He loved it. He was obsessed with this car. It was his baby. And so one night in high school, I, I was dating a girl that lived like three cities over, and she had come over for a movie night, and I don't know what my parents were thinking, but like they went to bed and left us like watching this movie. Every, everything was fine, above board, don't worry, like we were, we're good, but we fell asleep. Like we fell asleep during this movie, and I kid you not, it was a, a weeknight in high school, we didn't wake up until 1 a.m., <laughs> And my parents, I guess, were long gone. They were asleep. And so like, I wake up in this panic, like, oh, my gosh, I've got like a 20-minute drive to your house. We got to go. My car, 300,000 miles, super unreliable. So first thing I do, grab my dad's keys to his new car. I'll see where this is going. Get in the car, drive her home. Things are great. Start coming back. And I grew up in, in Los Angeles. We have these like seven-lane highways and I'm just cruising on the far left lane going like 75, and I start to get the nods. Start to nod off a little bit, nod off a little bit. I'm like, okay, I'm only 10 minutes away. I'll be fine. Next thing I know, boom, felt like somebody had just shoved me on my shoulder. And I immediately woke up and saw that I had swerved into the car on my right. I had swerved into the next lane and hit this car going 75 miles per hour. And in a state of panic, I get over, the person drives the car over, everyone is, is alive, which, which was better than I thought. But, but my, my dad's car, the whole right side, just completely bashed in. And the whole left side of this other person's car completely broken, bashed in. And so we exchange information, insurance stuff, all, all, the whole nine, and, and I drive home. And in that 10 minutes it took to get home, 
everything that was going through my head was, what is my dad going to think? And I went through every single scenario in my head. He's going to disown me, like I'm grounded forever, like I, I can't pay for this. He's going to give me one of those lectures. He's going to give me one of those, I knew you couldn't be trusted speeches, like of course this happened to you, how could you? And all those were playing through my head. I couldn't decide which one he was going to pick. So I pull into the driveway, knock on their door. My dad opens the door, kind of startled. I just said, Dad, tears coming down my eyes. I wrecked it. I wrecked it. I I crashed it. It's broken. He's like, what happened? Told him the whole story. He looks at the car. He, He comes to me. I'm just, I'm like, gearing up for the speech, gearing up for anger, frustration, and tears are coming down his eyes. He just gives me a, a huge hug. He says, oh my gosh, I'm so glad that you're okay. You could have died. I'm so happy that you're alive. I'm so glad that you are here, that you're back, that you made it home. We'll figure out all the car stuff tomorrow, but I'm just so glad that you're here. And in that moment, it clicked. I think this is how God views us. When we've wrecked it, when we've destroyed it, this life that he's given us, he's entrusted to us, he's instituted to us, and we just fall asleep at the wheel and crash it. God wants us to come to him. God wants us to confess. God wants us to bring the worst things in our life to him. And he's not gonna meet us with anger. He's not gonna meet us with, I told you so. He's not gonna meet us with, of course you did this again. That's so like you. He's gonna meet us with, the embrace of a loving father. He's, hey, I'm so glad you're here. It's like the prodigal son. I'm so glad you came back. I'm so glad you made it. We'll, we'll, figure, out, we'll figure out the next steps later, but I'm just so glad you're here. So the last thing I wanna leave us with tonight, we're gonna do this one more time. I know this one's gonna maybe feel the weirdest of them all, but I want us to, to be good about being vulnerable. I want us to learn that, that we can be real with God and with the people around us. As a family in Christ, we're supposed to be here for one another. We're supposed to be supportive. And so I'm gonna give us another minute or two. However vulnerable you wanna be with the people next to you, that's up to you. But talk about the things in your life that you feel like you've messed up. And then just with you and that person or you and that group, pray for each other and remind each other of the truth that comes with confession. That if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So let's discuss that. Let's confess together. As we leave tonight and we look back on this passage, let us see the, the central theme that's, that's going through all three of these. 
It's a perspective change. It's turning away from ourselves and to God. When things are good, reminding ourselves that God is the giver of all good things. When things are bad, reminding ourselves and praying, knowing that he is the only one that can help us and heal us in our most desperate times of need. And when life is messy and ugly, reminding ourselves that even when we're at our worst, he still loves us so, so deeply. And so as we go tonight, let's continue to be people that praise, that pray, and that confess to God and together. And so we will see you guys in two weeks. Enjoy fall break. Listen to the podcast on the way home tonight.